N-Track Connect is an initiative of Core to Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the N-Track Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core to Ed website. Welcome everybody. Today we are here for this podcast that is going to be covering uh, lung cancer and the detection of NTRAC gene fusion in lung cancer. I'm welcoming you here on behalf of the NTRAC Connect group. And um, the podcast will be uh, dealt by a um, pathologist. I'm the pathologist and I will be here with a, a medical oncologist. I'm Caterina Marchio and I'm a molecular pathologist working at the University of Turin. I work at a cancer institute, Candiolo Cancer Institute uh, uh, in Turin. Um, today, here with uh, Christian Rolfo, my uh, co-chair medical oncologist. Hi, Katarina, and good afternoon. So I'm Christian Rolfo. I'm a thoracic oncology at the Th- Center for Thoracic Oncologists uh, at uh, Mount Sinai in New York, Icahn School of Medicine, and it's a pleasure to discuss today this important topic in lung cancer. Good. So I think that here we have the challenge to uh, try to, uh, let's say, uh, t- talk a little bit how difficult it is uh, in our diagnostic practice to identify anthrac uh, fusion positive uh, uh, lung cancer. If I may have a word on this, I would say that uh, it's definitely challenging, but not impossible. And I think that in, in the field of lung cancer, Uh, medical oncologists, and Christian, you are one of the best examples of this. Uh, uh, I mean, medical oncologists in lung cancer are very used to uh, having an eye on uh, on the molecular profiling on lung carcinoma. So we have seen this for lung adenocarcinoma, but uh, a comprehensive profiling is are starting to, to get there. And so even though intra uh, gene fusions are rare alterations, and we have uh, learned this over the past uh, two, three years with uh, a lot of studies, Uh, mainly on uh, metastatic cancer patients with uh, comprehensive genomic profiling. So we, we got to understand that intrac uh, uh, gene fusion in lung cancer can be detected uh, in a handful uh, really of, of cases. So uh, when we say rare, I think we need to, to set a bar. And uh, so when I speak about rare alteration in, uh, for intrac gene fusion in lung cancer, I would say really alterations that are found in less than 1% of uh, our population. And uh, to be more precise, we would probably set the bar at around 0.3-0.4%. We need to know, I think, also, Christian, a little bit about the fact that whether there are any clinical pathological correlation that can be useful to identify this fusion. And uh, I think that also you participated to the description of this possible correlation, but we know that really intrac gene fusion can be found in uh, adenocarcinoma, but also in uh, carcinoma of squamous histology, in neuroendocrine carcinoma of the lung. So really we need to think uh, wide in, in lung cancer. I think we need to forget a little bit the clinical characteristics of the patients and go for testing everyone. So that is something that is still in the brain of several oncologists that we are guided by clinical characteristics, but it's time to change that because we don't have guidelines in this, uh, in this specific NTRAC fusion that is very promiscuous as a gene uh, in fusion partners. No? And, and, and I think you, you raise a, a good point. Yeah, I, and I think that we need to stress once more the fact that NTRAC gene fusion are a 
an agnostic biomarker. And even within lung cancer, they are agnostic respect, with respect to the different histological types. So this is really something that we need to, to, uh, to make clear. We talk about gene fusion. So, you know, pathologists uh, are, 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 uh, know a little bit about how to go about gene fusion. And lung cancer uh, is a good example because we have ALK uh, translocation, we have ROS uh, gene fusion. So, I mean, we have done a lot of work on that. And we know that uh, we can approach gene fusion at uh, different levels because, you know, gene fusion basically stems from a genetic rearrangement. So you can go about it uh, from a DNA point of view and look for the genetic rearrangement. But of course, then you can look at mRNA level. And so you go to the transcript and you, you want to see whether the transcript is there. And if the transcript leads to the expression of a, of a functional protein, then you can really use methods that, uh, that go to the section, so immunostochemistry. So we know that we have different ways of, of going about it. So I don't know about your experience with your pathologies, but I guess that, uh, uh, you know, in lung cancer, one option uh, would be to think about uh, a molecular profiling because this is, could be advantageous in this, uh, in this uh, specific set. But we have kind of recommendations that have been drafted over the past years. So uh, there are many uh, kind of algorithms that have tried to, you know, to devise a strategies in this context. What do you think about it? No, I think it's, it's really important. So obviously we are, we are talking today about different countries' realities. So uh, in some countries, immunohistochemistry could be an, a kind of a screening factor and that is important, but we need to also recommend it to these people that they need to continue with another technique to confirm that. In our reality in the United States, we are trying to do in all the patients next generation sequencing, because in that case, you are able to, to capture the majority, not only of the, these fusions, but also the commutations that we can see and clones of evolution of the disease. So um, it's, it's costly, but it's costly effective. And that is, that is the reality. Yeah, well, uh, we, let's try to get a, a kind of a sum up of, uh, of this point, because you raised two very important points, you know, the differences across countries, which, which are, you know, very important. And also the fact that with one technique that is NGS, you can get more out of just NTRAC gene fusion. That could be also very relevant to defining the, the good treatment for each, uh, each patient. So uh, if you look at the algorithm, uh, and we are talking about uh, those uh, tumors in which you have uh, uh, NTRAC gene fusion with um, low frequency, the algorithm suggests to go, above, let's say, to to look for a, a molecular approach if you already have set that in place at your institution. And this would, uh, let, let's say, go to NGS, as you were saying. And of course, if you have a molecular platform at your institution, it would be wise to just, you know, let's say, double check that uh, the panel, the targeted panel that you've chosen is actually picking up NTRAC gene fusions with the good sensitivity and specificity and go uh, for it. Because as you were saying, and this is a very important point, on the top of gene fusion, we would also detect all the other alter genetic alterations that may be relevant for the patient. But of course, if you don't have this option, gene fusion detection can be approached by um, another method that is a screening with immunostochemistry. And then very importantly, as you were saying, always confirming at the molecular level whether the the, the fusion is present or not in all cases that have been scored as positive by the pathologists.
some of the cases that are using some uh, PCR or uh, technologies as well need to be confirmed. So this is important because sometimes I, I see some confusions and that's I want to ask to you as a pathologist, what is your opinion? Because sometimes oncologists, I saw recently a case that they are confusing uh, PCR positive that is really not confirming tests. Yeah, well, let's say that uh, a PCR test has uh, a limited refer reference range by definition. So, I mean, uh, the PCR has the problem that you have to design specific primers. So, uh, you know, uh, first of all, you always look in with the PCR at something that is known. So it's, it's uh, a test that can be used, but with a lot of, uh, you know, with a pinch of salt. You need to be very careful in, uh, you know, screening with, uh, with a PCR test. And um, uh, one thing that, that in the diagnostic setting is still a little bit unknown, I think, is uh, uh, the approach by liquid biopsy. You know, when we drafted, for instance, the, the recommendation, we had very little information, actually no information about studies addressing intract gene fusion by liquid biopsy. But I know that you have done a lot of work. So uh, it would be very beneficial, I think, for our audience to know about a little bit more about it. Yeah, is uh, liquid biopsy obviously is a, a great tool for not only for the detection but also for the monitoring of patients in general with target therapies. So we did an experience on on 39 patients. That is obviously we know that this is very difficult to collect these kind of patients in in a trial. We did an experience of 39 patients, including nine different uh, um, disease. And at the time that we collected the samples uh, and, the, and the results was only Entrac 1 fusions uh, available for liquid biopsy. And that, why is that? Because as you say, Entrac is three genes with different, different fusions. So it's very difficult to get a uh, methodology that is covering all the fusions possibilities in, uh, with a deeper coverage in, a, in a only one test. So nowadays we have these technologies and that is recently, but there are not still large studies focuses in that. So what we what we saw in this series of cases that we published recently in British Journal of Cancer uh, is that the concordance was very high. Actually, 88% of the patients who have tissue confirmed were fine in the in the liquid biopsy. So it's, it's a really a big concordance. And we also was able not only to identify the, the, the fusions, but also the mutations in mechanisms of resistance in some patients. And and actually, some of the cases were really, uh, I would say, weird or at least were very good for education. That, for example, EGFR patients with entrac fusions during the course of their resistance uh, were found. So it's, it's really interesting to see how we can apply this. And, and me and you, we will work together in a, in a liquid biopsy project uh, that, uh, that we will launch for, for this kind of answer these questions that are very, really important, not only for the detection, but also, as I say, monitoring, see how the allelic fraction variation and the dynamics is reducing during the time. And that could be a surrogate like in other uh, targets of progression-free survivor and overall survivor. We need to know a lot about commutations as well, and liquid biopsy could be in a, good, uh, a good tool for, for understand clonal evolution of these patients. Yes, definitely. We need to push this uh, forward and to get uh, more data about it because I think it would be really relevant for uh, for medical oncologists to know how they they can use this strategy for, as you were saying, for monitoring. Good. So well. Uh, so after we have 
put a lot of effort on, uh, you know, finding the right way to address uh, the diagnostic issue. I think uh, especially pathologists really need to know how impressive are the results of the studies. When I see the results, I really feel that I'm, I'm contributing a lot to the, the, the success of this therapy for these patients. So I do think that this is a, a team work. And uh, once we have uh, signed out a case as positive, we know, and you will, will talk us through how impressive this uh, could be for the single patient. Yeah, and actually, I think this is a very example, a very nice example how precision oncology or, or personalized medicine can can arrive. No, and in these specific uh, alterations, uh, we have uh, several drugs and, uh, and very good news for patients that are having these alterations. Uh, the the first two drugs that we we knew in in this setting was uh, larotrectinib and entrectinib. And uh, both of the drugs are uh, showing an impressive results uh, in in this kind of, of tumors. I, I would say tumors because it's across different tumors and across adults and, and pediatric patients. And also a, a very important activity of these drugs was demonstrated in the in the brain, so that they are able to cross the hematoencephalic barrier perfectly. And in some cases, even with primary tumors in the brain, they are able to have a very good response. It was impressive also to see in, in, uh, in kids, for example, in pediatric oncologists, that the uh, reduction of the mutilating surgeries in some patients was achieved with these drugs. And, and that is, a, it is a, I think, is a very good news. And, and, and we need to continue with that. So we have in, in the setting of lung cancer, obviously, uh, the, the frequency, as you say, in these uh, uh, diseases is limited. But when you, we found this kind of patients, we need to treat with this kind of uh, inhibitor because the response are very good. And actually, larotrectinib show an important activity in brain and, and recently presentation of uh, uh, in world lung cancer of the data of larotrectinib showed that there was an uh, important activity not only in the systemic but in the brain with overall response rate uh, in general around 87%, so even complete response including. And uh, what is impressive on, on these two drugs, and especially in the, in the data that they presented in uh, larotrectinib, is confirming that the uh, median time to response is very short. So the patients are starting to respond in very short times, actually in 1.8 months, they are starting to have uh, activity of these drugs in reduction. And obviously it's an impact in progression-free survival and overall survival uh, that is, is there. The, the other drug that is uh, entrectinib, the entrectinib is have an interesting history behind, was uh, designed especially for the brain. Uh, and, uh, and the activity in the brain is also important in this drug. The data presented in, in ESMO this year confirmed that the response rates are, are high, including in lung cancer. In these 22 patients, including in the cohort, were responding in a, in, in a very well way. And actually, the response rates in these patients are 63 or 64% of the patient with a duration of response of around 20 months. So it's, a, it's impressive results. And also we're confirming the activity in the brain with an intracranial response rate that is around uh, 60%. And that's more or less the, the news for these two drugs that I think is, is very important. Obviously, 
we need to discuss about toxicity, that that is something important. And several of the toxicities that we see in these patients are related with the physiological activity of NTRAC. Uh, so NTRAC is involved in proprioception, in uh, weight control. So when we are blocking NTRAC, we have some of these alterations. So patients that are increasing the weight, patients that are also having some psychiatric trastorns or, or uh, difficulties that could be also uh, seen. And also importantly to remember that these patients can also have uh, some other uh, toxicities like uh, muscular pain, so myalgia, constipation, uh, diarrhea could be also important, increase of the uh, enzymes, uh, liver enzymes, and that's are more or less the most relevant but the majority of the, the toxicities are grade one or minimal grade two and grade three. So it's, a, it's really well tolerated. Good. And uh, well, so we also, you spoke uh, mostly about the first generation track inhibitors, right? So do we have any interesting data that we should uh, talk about a little bit uh, uh, about the second generation track inhibitors? Yeah, there are new drugs coming. And uh, one of the drugs that was... <laughs> Uh, in developed for a long time is uh, selitrectinib, that is uh, called uh, LOXO195. And this is also an, uh, uh, an inhibitor for the, the track. Uh, actually, there are in clinical trials. The, the, there is also a confirmed activity in the brain, in, the, in preclinical. There are also other drugs coming like repotractinib. Repotractinib show already uh, activity in, in track, uh, in vitro and in vivo, and there are several trials. Now there is the, the Trident trial that there are some preliminary data uh, of this. In, 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 it's also this, this drug is not only an NTRAC uh, fusion uh, inhibitor, but it's also a ROS1 inhibitor, like uh, the case of entrectinib. Uh, that's the difference, for example, with larotrectinib, that is only NTRAC inhibitor. And uh, there are new compounds like uh, taletrectinib that is uh, uh, in phase one. Actually, we saw some results in these patients as well. And, and this is also uh, a trial that is including uh, metastatic patients with, uh, with different tumor types. So it's, a, it's really brilliant, the, I will say, the, the, the research in this, in this field. And we will have several other new drugs coming and uh, obviously <laughs> we will have questions about sequence uh, what we need to use first uh, what combinations uh, are these patients responding later on to uh, immunotherapy or not we don't know that so are different things that we need to 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 discuss and, and see in the time so it's very important that when we have patients and we discover even in the mechanism of resistance we are addressing that properly and also notifying or try to make a publication because it's very important that we learn from every case uh, because this is a very rare disease. Well, uh, these are always impressive data. You know, when we talk about track inhibition, I'm always impressed. And if I had to, you know, to take something back home, if I, you know, for pathologists, I would just say that I would like to be part of this, uh, you know, this new way of uh, dealing with the targeted therapies and this new pathology uh, that we are witnessing. I think we are really experiencing a new era for pathologists that is really much closer to patients than it was before. 
So that would be my take-home message for pathologists, I would say. What would be your take on it for, for oncologists? I will say that, um, first of all, we, we have options for patients and we need to search the patient if we want to find the patients. So my message is test your patients, do it the proper test, so try to, to accomplish that. If you don't have in your institution the possibility to do that, you can contact always center of reference that they can do that. But if you are entering in this pathway for a patient, you, are, you can change completely the reality of that patient. So it's really important and, and, and we solve. It's not only in lung cancer. So it's important that we test several of these patients. Right. I, I totally agree. I think that our expertise as pathologists, as you were saying, if we do not have the, you know, the ability to do it ourselves, our expertise about knowing, you know, about enteric gene fusion is also to address to the right lab. So that's a very important message overall. And, and we need to have a very good communication between pathologists and oncologists to make this uh, a team to work together in these patients. Absolutely. Well, Good. So what do you think, Christian? I, I hope that the, the live podcast that we, uh, that we are managing is going to be useful for, uh, for our colleagues. And from my side, I would like to thank you for this uh, nice conversation. This N-Track Connect podcast was brought to you by Courtoed Independent Medical Education. Please visit courtoed.com for more information.